Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We need to start off with a little bit of a palate cleanser. I, I like Jimmy Kimmel's uh, Jimmy Kimmel's routine where he walks through the various stages of grief that apparently Donald Trump continues to navigate. Let's play this. We've identified the Trump stages of grief in 10 parts. First up, denial. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. Then, anger. Joe Biden is a criminal, and he's been a criminal for a long time. And you're a criminal and the media for not reporting it. After anger comes blame. This is a horrible thing that the United States Supreme Court has done to our country. And I say it, and I say it loud, and I say it proud. After blame, we have delusion. I see thousands of ballots, right, unsolicited ballots being given out by the millions, and thousands of them are dumped in dumpsters. Litigation. There's tremendous litigation going on. Discombobulation. If people wanted to get their ballots in, they should have gotten their ballots in long before that, a long time. More delusion. I've done more for the black community than any president since Abraham Lincoln. Incoherence. I can tell you stories about Lady Gaga. I know a lot of stories about Lady Gaga. And John Bon Jovi, every time I see him, he kisses my ass. Hallucination. Lumby, Catawa. Drip, 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 drip. Bing, bing, bong, bong, bing, bing, bing. Weagle, wiggle, wiggle. And finally, acceptance. This was China's fault. Okay, well, that's, or as close to it as he can possibly get. Now bend over and take it like a man getting spanked with a rolled up magazine. Oh, 64 days to go. So joining us on the Bulwark podcast today, uh, Eric Edelman, who's an American diplomat who served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy uh, back in the aughts, U.S. Ambassador to Turkey, U.S. Ambassador to Finland, Principal Deputy Assistant to the Vice President for National Security. Thank you for coming back uh, on the podcast, Ambassador. Charlie, great to be with you today. Well, it is crazy times, and I want to get to the the transition and various things that uh, that are going on that we're reading about uh, involving national security issues. But can we just talk about what's happening in Georgia right now and the whole Lindsey Graham story? Because that is just so bizarre. Uh, it, it is really bizarre. I mean, I I've read the Washington Post uh, interview with Secretary of State Raffensperger, and I think this is a case for uh, uh, Attorney General Barr and. Uh, the Department of Justice to look into Lindsey Graham suborning uh, voter fraud on the part of the Secretary of State of Georgia. Well, whether or not, I, by the way, I'm in cl- completely in favor of that, but whether or not it's illegal or not or violated any any federal statute, just the ethics of it, The the for people who haven't heard this story, uh, Raffensperger, who's a Republican, says that he was pressured by Lindsey Graham to determine whether or not there were areas that had a lot of where the signatures on an absentee ballots might not have matched up. These are legally cast ballots. And Graham asking whether or not you could just sort of randomly uh, toss out ballots. And he said, I was stunned by this because Graham appeared to be suggesting that there was a way to to toss legally cast ballots. So let's just assume for the moment that he's not suborning voter fraud and everything. It really is extraordinary the extent to which this strategy has become just, you know, 
out in the open, disenfranchising tens, if not hundreds of thousands of voters. I mean, remember all the talk, Eric, about about uh, voter integrity and how we have to uphold the Constitution and these democratic values. And now we have Lindsey Graham on the phone trying to influence the secretary of state in Georgia. Like, can we take the vote away from people? Can we just take these legally cast ballots and throw them in the trash? And it's sort of like, yeah, this is this is American politics on Tuesday. This is really, I think I was my comment was obviously a bit tongue in cheek about Attorney General Barr looking into this. But but um, the reality is, I think this shows, you know, the the sort of degradation of the Republican Party in the era of Trump, the subordination of people who ought to know better, um, you know, like Lindsey Graham. But I also think it shows the danger of what the president's been doing. And my my colleague at Johns Hopkins uh, School of Advanced International Studies, Elliot Cohen, always says that it's not that you know politicians say things they don't believe that should worry us. It's that uh, they come to believe the things they say. And the the fact that people have now been talking for uh, two weeks about this you know completely phantasmagorical voter fraud that is supposed to have been taking place when when in fact almost every real expert testifies to the fact that this has been uh, one of the cleanest, most transparent um, and safe elections we've had, uh, I, I just think speaks volumes about how much people are willing to, to uh, you know, truckle to uh, Donald Trump's fantasies. Well, it is. And it, it is this weird stew of delusion and cynicism. And I mentioned on the podcast yesterday, I, I, I can no longer figure out what people actually believe. I mean, there are the true believers, the people who are going to mainline these these fantasies these you know just toxic conspiracy theories about dominion the voting machine company being programmed to change all of the votes apparently only votes for president not for congress or or, or for senate are there people who actually believe that stuff well maybe because they've seen it on their facebook feeds but you do wonder about you know other people who are on television uh whether or not they believe it or, or whether or not that the truth is irrelevant they they just kind of push the line i mean we talked about Victor Davis Hansen um, on with a show with Seb Gorka or, or or Lou Dobbs. Here's one more irony before we get into other things here. I, any scenario of Trump retaining the presidency ultimately ends with the and then the Supreme Court waves the magic wand and overturns the election. I mean, a lot of things have to happen, right? I mean, a lot, a lot of things uh, you have to overturn the Georgia vote in a recount. That's not happening. Overturn Wisconsin in a recount. That's not going to happen. Uh, Arizona, you flip Arizona, you flip, flip Nevada. And then somehow you get five justices of the U.S. Supreme Court that are willing to toss out the results in Pennsylvania. I mean, th- there are people who think this is going to happen. But I guess part of the irony of all this is that Remember when Republicans, Ambassador, remember when Republicans railed against activist judges, unelected judges who would legislate from the bench? They wanted judicial restraint. And right now, all of their hopes are based on this belief that maybe the Supreme Court will step in and overturn an election in which more than 150 million Americans voted. I mean, think about that for a moment. No, uh, alas, I am old enough to remember, <laughs> and and um, it it it's very disturbing, and it's uh, more than that. As somebody who uh, was the U.S. ambassador to uh, to Turkey, uh, uh, a NATO ally, 
um, a, a democracy. It was, as Dean Acheson said, an imperfect democracy, but still a democracy and has watched that country under uh, President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan take a terribly authoritarian con- uh, you know, turn over the last 20 years. Uh, you know, I, I watch this and listen to this with uh, a real uh, sense of concern and foreboding because it really does bespeak a uh, uh, the same kind of majoritarian mindset um, and uh, and the um, lack of concern for the norms uh, of democracy that I saw go on in in, in Turkey. Yeah, I know that there are some people that the, in the in the smart set, set that continue to say, "Don't be worried about uh, you know creeping authoritarianism." You know, this is the story is going to be about how the system has worked, and there was no no problem whatsoever. And all of this these this alarm has been exaggerated. And look, I mean, I think that you know, Joe Biden's going to be sworn in on January twentieth. It's not going to work. On the other hand, we have eroded so many of the norms that you just mentioned. We have a we we have put in place. So many of the things that do erode democracy, and I and I think that that can't be said enough. That when you have this, then we get to the point where the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee is mulling, "Gosh, can we can we install this guy who just lost the the presidential election? Can we install him for another four years if we just find some sleight of hand to throw out votes? We're we're in a weird area, by the way. But you know, having said this, uh, there's a uh, the election law blog is Rick Richard. I, I think his name is Hassan. Rick Hassan. Yeah. It wrote, look, put, it's time to put a fork in all of this. This is over. Trump may, you know, continue to say he won the election. There's no path. Um, even the two cases pending in Pennsylvania don't involve enough votes to overturn the results. So there's no path at all. And it's been amazing watching all of these legal efforts fail because it turns out, Ambassador, that it's um, harder to make a case in court where you're under oath and you have your legal license at risk than it is to throw out uh, some BS on Twitter. Who knew? Yeah, really. No, I, I, you know, I quite agree with that. But I do worry when you look at the polling that shows very, very large numbers of Republican voters believe this election was stolen from from Donald Trump, believe he actually won the election. Uh, regard the incoming uh, Biden administration as illegitimate. Uh, it's very, very corrosive uh, of democracy, and uh, you know it, it's not. I think does not bode well for the future. No, it it it, it doesn't. And be, because I'm tempted to become very negative like that, I I should point out. I mean, there are some some good signs. We had the 16 Justice Department prosecutors who were supposed to be monitoring the election writing a letter saying they saw no evidence of voter fraud. That was, that was, it was, I think it was encouraging that they were willing to do that. The courts throwing out all of these, these bogus uh, lawsuits, Uh, even the Republican state legislative leaders in, in the four states um, that would have had to have been flipped, essentially saying we're not interested in using electoral vote certification to overturn the election. These are all positive things of people pushing back. I guess. Uh, and then, of course, very importantly, which I want to get to with you, uh, General Mark uh, Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, declaring that the military's sworn loyalty is the Constitution, not right. to an individual, the, which, which brings us to what's going on in the Pentagon. I thought that was very reassuring to, that he that he stated that. And given the current climate, that took some guts. Um, it, it, it did. Um, and, you know, I, I think 
Uh, General Milley, I think, learned uh, his lesson the hard way from the episode in June where he was, uh, I think, genuinely inadvertently, you know, involved in the president's uh, performative act of going to St. John's Church and holding up a Bible and, you know, all the rest of that uh, nonsense um, during the uh, Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, so I think uh, General Milley and I think his colleagues on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the various service chiefs, all feel this very keenly. And they want their, you know, very much want to preserve a professional, non-political military uh, in the face of a president who, since he was, you know, inaugurated, has referred to my generals and who seems mm-hmm. to the Department of Defense as his, you know, personal possession. Well, let's talk about what's been happening at the Department of Defense. We've, we've brought this up on the podcast several times. I know that you were on uh, Mona Sharon's podcast talking about this. So give me your read about what happened at the Department of Defense and how we ought to be reacting to it. Well, having talked to some of the um, recently former senior defense officials who were uh, purged last, last week, uh, I, I think uh, a couple of things. One, I think the, the proximate cause, and I think Secretary Esper believes this, for his firing by tweet was the fact that he had been uh, raising uh, concerns with the White House about the president's evident desire to uh, precipitously withdraw from Afghanistan before he uh, departs office on January 20th, um, because that seems to be the driving um, the the date that's driving all of this. Um, Secretary Esper, I think, uh, and this has been reported in the Washington Post and on CNN, had sent a a lengthy memo which detailed uh, six or seven reasons for um, caution, uh, including the fact that uh, internally the government had agreed, U.S. government had agreed that certain conditions had to be met by the Taliban before the United States could contemplate drawing down its 4,500 troops in Afghanistan, who, by the way, are not in a combat role to begin with. Mm-hmm. As uh, Senate Majority Leader McConnell noted on the floor of the Senate yesterday uh, in, a, in a quite good speech, um, you know, the, these troops have been in a support supporting role uh, for the Afghan National Security Forces, who, as the Wall Street Journal editorial page noted uh, yesterday, are doing the fighting and dying, not, not really the Americans. Um, he pointed out as well that we have allies to consider, uh, which is something the Times of London has drawn attention to in its reporting on this episode. Um, he pointed out that uh, there was a real danger of uh, so-called green on blue violence. That is to say, if we just uh, willy-nilly pick up and leave, uh, some of the Afghan security forces with whom we've been partnered will see us as abandoning them and it might actually put American uh, service men and women's lives in, in jeopardy. And it was that um, you know pushback against uh, the president's uh, desires as transmitted by his um, uh, National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, who seems to have no uh, independent judgment of his own, um, that uh, Secretary Esper, I think, believes precipitated his departure and then the, the departure of other senior officials who had been associated with him. Um, there's a second reason, I think, which is just the the, um, the petty vengeance and the desire to humiliate people, which seems to animate uh, President Trump and to some degree Robert O'Brien, who had clashed repeatedly with Secretary Esper and with the Pentagon. And then the third reason is 
that they were stocking uh, the building with people like Anthony Tata, who who had been nominated but then withdrew for my old position, the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy position. Doug McGregor, a, a frequent uh, Fox News talking head who has been nominated to be U.S. ambassador to Germany and who appears to be a living incarnation of the Willis Cardo Liberty Lobby, Lindbergh, anti-Semitic, wow. uh, old right, you know, isolationist uh, approach to the world, uh, as well as Ezra Cohn-Watnick and uh, uh, a few others who have been sent over there. And, and these people were sent over as Trump loyalists to stock the building before a, you know, completely illusory, uh, hallucinatory second Trump term. It, it it really is the collection of misfit toys that we've talked about over the last four years. So let me just ask this question, just stepping back a, a moment. I mean, here you have a president who he, he is still the president. He still is the commander in chief. He's been promising for four years to withdraw everyone from Afghanistan to end the quote unquote endless wars. And I guess it raises the question, you know, what, why it has taken him so long to do that and why we what what purpose does it serve? Why? Or another way of putting it, if 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 Trump was determined to get out, he's had four years to do it. Has he been stymied? Has he been undermined in his ability to execute the policy that he's been pretty clear about? Well, I think he's not alone. I mean, uh, Barack Obama had eight years to do it and wasn't uh, able to do it either. And I suspect that's because, as John Adams says, uh, facts are stubborn things. And I think the reality is the the U.S. military and most, I think, um, national security professionals who know very much about this and have been involved in it believe that you know, a small ongoing U.S. presence, not necessarily in a combat role, but in a supporting role, uh, is a small price to pay to keep Afghanistan from sliding back uh, into uh, disarray, to falling back under the sway of the Taliban and uh, a circumstance that undoubtedly would allow uh, al-Qaeda, uh, the Islamic State, uh, other uh, extremist uh, Islam Islamist groups uh, who wish the United States ill to be able to use it as a safe haven from which to plot mass casualty attacks or inspire lone wolf attacks uh, against the United States and or its allies. And I think both the Obama administration and the Trump administration and both presidents recognized that uh, a withdrawal that um, allowed that to happen would carry with it potentially a very severe political penalty for whoever did it if, God forbid, something were to happen. And uh, that's actually a point that the Wall Street Journal uh, made in its editorial yesterday. Um, and in that sense, you know, this is actually politically, I think, quite fraught for Republicans. Mm -hmm. And some Republicans I've talked to on the Hill recognize this, which is Joe Biden is going to inherit, you know, a very complicated for him decision to make about, about the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. He will have the professionals on his team arguing for some kind of ongoing, sustainable, but limited presence, a counterterrorism presence that will allow the United States to keep its eye on what's going on in Afghanistan and not allow the regime to collapse and the Taliban to come back and al-Qaeda to come back, etc. He will also have the progressive left of his party 
the Matt Dusses of the world, Bernie Sanders, AOT, mm-hmm. and others, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, joining with uh, Doug McGregor and the isolationist Republican right and calling you know, for him to end the endless wars and get out. Um, you know, why would the Trump administration, outgoing Trump administration, want to hand him, you know, the talking point of being able to say, hey, the Trump people pulled out. I couldn't do anything about it. Um, and whatever happens from now on, you know, uh, if there's another terrorist attack that originates in Afghanistan, Donald Trump and the Republicans who enabled him during the transition own it. So that you, you mentioned before that, that Mitch McConnell gave a pretty good speech yesterday, and I, I was struck by the fact that McConnell has an almost infinite capacity for not pushing back on Donald Trump, not hearing about uh, various things that he's doing or not having an opinion. He made an exception. It, it was it was notable for, um, n- number one, how rare it was for Mitch McConnell to take on the president on this particular issue. And I think you just basically ran through what the politics were. Why would you solve this problem and leave the, the Biden administration with a blank sheet, not to mention the the actual objective dangers and downsides of doing it? But it was interesting because it, 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 for me, it highlighted all the things that Mitch McConnell has not been willing to challenge the president on. Well, I have my share of criticisms of Leader McConnell, but I have to say on this, he's been quite consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, did the same uh, on the Syria withdrawal back a year ago, uh, you know, outlining the reasons why the uh, precipitous withdrawal from Syria um, that uh, mm-hmm. President Trump unleashed in the aftermath of a phone call uh, from, um, from a Turkish President mm-hmm. Erdogan. Uh, had done. So I, I think at least on this one, Leader McConnell has been quite consistent. And I, for one, was really glad to hear him come so, out yesterday. So what do you think is going to happen? What will happen between now and the end of, of, of Trump's term? Will he be able to get to draw the troops down as, as he wants? Um, how will this, what's the end game here? Well, uh, you know, we saw there was, I think, Axios and, and others reported last night that, um, the Pentagon sent out a, uh, a warning order um, that suggested that a, a presidential order uh, to draw down uh, some 2,000 troops from 4,500 to something like 2,500 is likely to be forthcoming. Um, I think uh, it's altogether possible that that will happen. But I know from my own uh, experience as Undersecretary of Defense Policy, when we were looking at um, withdrawals from Iraq, it, it is actually a lot harder to execute this uh, than it would seem. This is not a matter of merely you know, giving an order and having 2,000 troops you know, get onto a plane and, and come home. Um, there's the associated equipment uh, that needs to be dealt with. There is the uh, closure of the forward operating bases from which they've been um, uh, operating. Either they have to uh, turn them over and transfer them to the Afghan national, uh, se- you know, security forces mm-hmm. and forces, or uh, they have to uh, destroy them so that they don't, you know, fall into mm-hmm. the hands of the, you know, the adversaries. So this is a, a complicated process, and uh, my suspicion is that um, the Pentagon will be taking, as a bureaucracy is capable of doing, um, its sweet time uh, you know, <laughs> executing this. 
in the hope that the 60, uh, you know, some odd days run out and, uh, you know, the Biden administration comes in and countermands the orders. So uh, speaking of of other things that might happen in the next 64 days, uh, we wake up to hear the the accounts uh, this morning that that apparently the president uh, had asked his advisors about the advisability of bombing Iran. We're now finding out that, that uh, Iran, not surprisingly, since the deal has been canceled, has been uh, enriching more uranium. This has always been a hot spot. It is interesting, by the way, is that at the end of the four years, North Korea and Iran both seem closer to becoming uh, nuclear powers as opposed to the the, the opposite. But uh, talk to me about that, The what the options are with Iran. Well, I think um, the president uh, was alerted to the fact that the most recent uh, IAEA report, the International Atomic Energy Agency, that monitors the um, the joint comprehensive uh, uh, plan of action that um, was reached by the Obama administration in July 2015 with Iran, that uh, since the United States withdrew from uh, the, the deal, the Iranians have said they're not bound by the limits on low-enriched uranium, uh, the amounts of which they can, uh, they can keep on hand, uh, and also the amount of enrichment uh, above uh, 3.75% that they're allowed to have. And uh, I think the amounts now are something like 12 times uh, what what they were allowed. I, I think in general, people believe that the timeline now, which the Obama administration had hoped to keep it a year, 12 months between uh, the, the time that uh, Iran could get a, uh, enough fissile material for a nuclear weapon, it's now down to like three and a half months. So this obviously got the president's attention. Um, and uh, he was clearly inquiring about what his military options were. Um, in fact, uh, that is a very tough military problem, and uh, I think he was persuaded, uh, including by Secretary Pompeo a- and others, that um, that the danger here of uh, kind of escalation and getting into a broader conflict with Iran were really quite high. And since supposedly he's ending endless wars, yeah, right. <laughs> the, the idea of ending endless wars while starting another one, probably even he understood didn't make much yeah. sense. Yeah, there's a little bit of a contradiction there. So we are in this weird moment that we've really never experienced. I understand that there was a delay in the transition back in the year 2000, but this this feels so much stranger and so, so much weirder. How concerned, how concerned should we be? With the delay in the in the in the transition, and and I and I ask that thinking that the delay may be longer than people expect it to be. I think the off ramp for Trump is going to be much longer than people think. He's not going to get over it anytime soon. Uh, you know, we have this uh, we have the special election in uh, Georgia, and of course, Republicans are telling themselves, "Well, we we can't break with the president before that because that might demoralize our voters." But wait, uh, that's January fifth. The formal reading of the electoral votes is not till January 6th. So at what point are they going to flip the switch and have the transition? And and this is an extraordinary moment because we not only have these national security issues that we've been discussing, but we also have this pandemic, which is a genuine national crisis and uh, dealing with the question of whether or not we're going to be able to distribute the vaccine. So Give me your sense of the cost and the da- the dangers of what's happening with the transition. Well, I think it's uh, it's a real danger, and there are really grave costs. I mean, uh, 
President-elect Biden said yesterday, the potential cost is that on the COVID side, more people will die if there's not an effective handoff between administrations. And I think that's right. So, you know, we, we are not a parliamentary democracy like the UK. You know, in, in the UK, when um, you have an election um, that night, usually, or the next day at the latest, which is amazing. The, the departing prime minister walks out the door and the incoming prime minister, um, you know, um, he or she walks in the door and is met by the you know, permanent cabinet secretary who has a big red box full of, uh, you know, decision memos and papers that the new prime minister takes on. And, and there are permanent undersecretaries in every single one of the cabinet uh, ministries in, in Britain. And, there is a shadow cabinet of people who have been sitting in the parliament looking at the issues, waiting to take over these uh, ministries, whether it's the foreign office or the defense ministry or what have you, and come in with some uh, idea of what the issues are. We have a much more complex system. Our government is much larger, uh, and the process of, of taking over the government involves uh, first and foremost, putting together a White House staff, which is why President-elect Biden in the first instance named Ron Klain as the chief of staff, because when you walk into the White House on January 20th, um, everybody has left, uh, with the possible exception of maybe some civil service secretaries or a couple of people, and they've left with all the files. All the files are packed up into 18-wheelers that park on <laughs> West they don't, they don't leave the Rolodexes um, and, the, and the passwords behind them. No, everything goes to the National Archives, and there's a complete lack of institutional memory in the White House. That's less true in the, in the cabinet agencies, where you do have, obviously, permanent staff who, who stay on and a little bit more institutional memory. But it's a real problem in, in the White House. And so you get the you know, transition is a place where you put together the White House staff, you put together the cabinet, and then you staff the agencies. You you, you recruit, you um, you know, scrutinize, and then ultimately nominate people for the cabinet uh, positions and the sub cabinet positions that require Senate confirmation. And you have to put together a government, you know, of some four to six thousand presidential appointees. Uh, and you need to set a new policy agenda. And then basically what you're doing is m making the transitioning from campaigning to governing. Although I don't think because Donald Trump blew up his own transition three days after the election four years ago, you could argue, I suppose, that he never made that transition. But in principle, that's what's supposed to happen. Uh, and you have to establish working relationships with Congress uh, and in particular prepare and submit uh, a a new budget, which usually happens in February, um, for authorization and appropriation by the Congress. So there's a lot Jeez. to be done. Yeah, like going, you, you, you've been involved in multiple transitions, right? You've been mentioning this before we started the the, the podcast. Uh, yeah. did, did I hear you say that you had been involved in five presidential transitions? Correct. So this is the question. I mean, the upside and the downside. The, the downside being that there's going to be no cooperation probably at, at all. So it's going to be very difficult to be hit the ground running on day one. The upside is that uh, Joe Biden is not a neophyte. He's And the people around him have a great deal of experience. So in many ways, unlike four years ago, when Trump came in absolutely clueless about what he needed to do, 
not understanding what the levers of power were or the responsibilities that he had to have and surrounded himself with people who really didn't know what they were doing. The Biden folks are 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 staffed up with a lot of veterans, aren't they? So I, I in 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 some ways, even though Trump is going to make it as difficult as possible, it seems the odds are that this will will go more efficiently than four years ago. Or am I being too optimistic here? Which I don't want to be. No, I, I think, you know, that's certainly correct. I mean, you know, uh, Vice President Biden, who President Trump derided for having been in politics for 47 years, brings to the presidency, a, you know, a wealth of experience. Um, and as you say, he is surrounded by a very experienced team. And many of those people, um, but not all of them, will have been, you know, in, um, in government you know, as recently as four years ago. The problem, and I've seen this repeatedly, Charlie, in the um, the uh, back and forth, when when people come back into government after being gone for four or eight, or in some cases, 12 years, uh, what's happened in the intervening years is not insignificant. Things mm. have changed. It was not just the way it was when they left. And when you combine that with the, you know, sort of human nature that basically says, well, we won and they lost. And so therefore, you know, we are going to undo all their works and everything they did must be wrong. Uh, there is a real tendency for people to make mistakes. And I've seen this happen time and again. Not everything that was done by the Trump administration will turn out to have been disastrous and wrong. There will be some things that were done that are worth preserving or building on. But it, it, it's going to take some time and effort to actually understand the lay of the land, what's changed, what's the same, uh, you, know, what's, you know, what's happened in these agencies that requires attention. I mean, the State Department, where I spent my 30 years in government, um, is one place that's going to need a lot of attention because of the incredible damage that's been done to it institutionally by Rex Tillerson and Mike Pompeo. But it's going to take some time to survey that, you know, and get a sense of uh, the agencies as they are in order to put together a governing agenda. And one of the other questions we don't know the answer is how how uh, hard a line will Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, the Senate uh, draw when it comes to the cabinet members? I mean, there was a, certainly a time when there was just the assumption that a president deserved the cabinet that he wanted. And in many cases, some of the key people would be confirmed within hours of the of the inauguration. But now there's some there's some buzz out there that if uh, if the president were to name, say, Susan Rice to be the secretary of state, that the Republicans in the Senate might actually vote against her. What's 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 your sense of that, which would be a stunning beginning of the of the Biden presidency to reject the president's choice of the secretary of state just sort of because. Yeah, I, well, I was encouraged that Senator Graham, who we were uh, mm -hmm. uh, dunking on earlier, um, you know, has said that he thinks that, um, you know, the uh, vice president should, Vice President Biden should get the cabinet of, you know, his choice. We'll see whether he, you know, sticks with that position since Senator Graham intended to, you know, not stick with positions that he took earlier, for instance. Uh, no, and been been very easy. He's found it very easy to completely reverse himself. Yeah, including on things like um, the um, 
confirmation of Supreme Court justices in the you know waning months of a presidential term. Right. With, with, without a blink, he was able to do that. Yeah, Not so, to mention all the things he used to say about Donald Trump. But yeah, so that that is positive that the Lindsey Graham at least re- retains some memories of the institution not wanting to be completely obstructive. Yes. But I mean, having said that, I, yeah. I think that, um, you know, leader McConnell, assuming that the Republicans hold mm-hmm. the seats in Georgia and hold the Senate. And I'm not a hundred percent sure about that, by the way, I, I think what the president's doing is very bad for Republicans and actually could end up costing them those Senate seats, but that's another discussion. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, I think that uh, Leader McConnell is going to have a very tough road to hoe. There are clearly going to be some members of the Republican Senate who are going to want to be in that Trump lane who are going to just be obstructive and are going to vote against anybody that Biden puts up or certainly anyone controversial like Susan Rice or Hillary Clinton were she to be nominated for, you know, there's been speculation she might be um, ambassador to the UN or... Hmm. Uh, some people have talked about Secretary of Defense based on her recent foreign affairs article. It seemed to indicate that she was a member of the Armed Services Committee when she was in the Senate. But um, I, I think McConnell is going to have uh, some difficulty. I do think he wants to be constructive uh, and work with, uh, um, with the Biden people. He has a relationship with President-elect Biden from their years in the Senate. Uh, there's, I think, mutual respect, uh, if not necessarily affection between the two. Um, and I do think McConnell wants to be constructive. Um, but I think that will also, it will depend on whether really controversial nominees are, are uh, put in front of the Senate who might make it hard for him to actually get them through because he's not going to be able to completely control in opposition his, his, own, his own conference. Well, as you mentioned, there will be senators who will want to stay in the Trump lane. One of the consequences of the way this this is playing out, where you know Trump has been you know claiming that uh, that the election's been stolen from him, that uh, questioning the legitimacy of the election, which also questions the legitimacy of of a Biden presidency, he makes it extremely difficult for Republicans n- now to cooperate with the Biden presidency. You've you've got the base so ginned up. Um, so, so, so ginned up to be rejectionist that, that any Republican that votes to confirm any one of Biden's nominees knows that that's going to be an issue against them uh, out there. And the, you know, they will, they will stir up the fever swamps that, that this is some sort of a, of a betrayal. Now, many of them may not care. You would think that people who have just been reelected to a six year term wouldn't care. Uh, at a certain age you go, Hey, maybe it's more important that we govern and solve problems than that I worry about what they're going to say about me on the Federalist or Breitbart.com. But we've seen how powerful that is. We haven't we haven't seen a lot of bursts of statesmanship, have we, for a while? And I guess that that's what's so concerning because there's going to have to be some statesmanship, at least on issues like how what are we going to do with the economy and what are we going to do with the pandemic. Now, we've gone a long way in this podcast without talking about Joe Biden, which is amazing, or about about the pandemic. But give me give me your take on how Biden has handled it so far. I, I have been struck by the consistency of of his voice and his tone, the, the sort of the calm voice. Let's not catastrophize moving very, very deliberately. And I haven't seen him hit the wrong note yet. So I'm I'm not I'm not trying to grade him on a curve, but I have to say that that 
given how awful the this post-election period has been, Biden's handled it pretty well so far. At I, least that's I, my sense. I completely agree with that. Uh, I think he set the you know right tone uh, when he um, spoke. Uh, uh, I guess it was, was last Saturday. I'm losing track. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, when the election was called for him, I think he's uh, been uh, measured and moderate in his tone. Um, I think um, it's been you know very you know very much uh, with malice towards none you know kind of uh, approach. Um, sort of like the approach that Lincoln set out in his second inaugural. And I think that's appropriate to the moment. And uh, I've been quite uh, encouraged by it. I mean, I, I was part of uh, two groups, one of Republican national security leaders who endorsed Biden and another group that was just a bipartisan group of national security officials who endorsed um, uh, Vice President Biden. But I, I, must say, I you know have had in the past many policy disagreements with him, and I expect to have many in the future. Uh, but one reason I endorsed him was because of his character and temperament, uh, and I've been uh, really very gratified to see that side of him coming out um, since the election. So right now, what what are you what are you looking at? What what are the things that we should be keeping our eyes on over the next couple of days? Well, I think um, it's certainly the case that. Um, we should see when this transition begins. Um, the, the fact that uh, the transition uh, got started late in 2000, I think you mentioned that, uh, was uh, cited in the 9-11 Commission report, the 36-day hiatus before the transition started, did create uh, some problems for the incoming Bush administration in terms of its preparation ultimately um, for what befell it, you know, during the course of that first year. Um, the truth is the transition goes, you know, doesn't end on January 20th because it takes us quite a long time now to get people confirmed. It usually takes well into the summer and maybe as late as September. So in that sense, the transition is not just, um, the period between, you know, November 3rd and January 20th. It actually extends much much further than that. Um, and so we need to, I think, you know, keep an eye on that. Um, the question you raised about Iran is important because our national security system is totally revolves around the person of the president. Uh, and in some sense, there really are not that many institutional restraints on the use of presidential power when it comes to foreign affairs and national security. And that's actually one reason why presidents tend to gravitate towards uh, foreign affairs, because in domestic affairs, uh, you know, the responsibility is so much uh, spread around between the executive, the legislative, um, and uh, the judiciary, which are, in fact, the three branches of government, not as Senator-elect Tuberville seems to think, the House, the Senate, and the, um, and the, and the uh, presidency. Um and so it's not surprising that presidents gravitate towards towards national security affairs. Um, and the president will remain pretty much untrammeled in that area until January 20th. And so I think we will, I don't believe this is the last story we'll see of this kind. Oh, no, I don't, I don't think so. In fact, uh, that that's going to be a, a drama. I mean, at some point he's going to end the sulk uh, and he's going to look around and he's going to, you know, figure which buttons can he push. Um, 
I'm expecting a very, very active pardon season, including possible self-pardoning. And then, of course, we don't know whether he wants to go out with a literal bang, say, in the Middle East. Although the contradiction between bombing Iran and, and claiming at the same time to end endless wars, I think, may actually slow him down just enough. Eric Edelman, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Uh, as always, we really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, Charlie. Happy to be here. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.